All right, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, maybe you've heard of them. Well, if you guys want to see some additional content, we got it up. Uh, it will give you an idea of some of the things that people are seeing on the show. So please check it out. Give a follow. Photos, videos will pop up if you give it a follow as they become available and you can stay in touch with the ocean. Our guest today, a man, a legend, Grant Law. So please get ready and enjoy the show. Good to go? Welcome to Ocean Folk Podcast, the podcast where we speak to people who the ocean speaks to. We explore the stories of those who explore the ocean. Okay, welcome. Welcome to Ocean Folks Podcast. Today we have our uh, friendly guest, Mr. Grant Law. Uh, Grant, do us a favor and just give us a little short bio of your background and stuff and why we've asked you to come here. Sure. Okay, a short bio. I am a huge fan of the ocean. Uh, I guess that's the best way to put it. Um, I loved it as a kid. Uh Studied as much as I could, ended up teaching for a science museum in Portland, Oregon, where I used to live, marine science at a camp. Uh, they all encouraged me to go to school for it, so I went to school, and I got a degree, and then I went back to school, and I got a PhD in uh, marine ecology. And since then, I did some work as a postdoc, doing scientific research. Um, when that wasn't as fulfilling as I would have liked it to be, I tried other things including uh, working as a dive instructor and a dive guide. Uh, lately, I've been working on boats, learning uh, boat right skills. Uh, but I just love the ocean. So, Super cool. I assume that's why you want to talk. Absolutely. And so when uh, you say, how did you, how did you, so you got into marine biology. Uh, what, was there a particular person who inspired you? Or like, how did you, how did you know you wanted to go pursue that? Uh, that was definitely Jacques Cousteau. I'm <laughs> I'm in my early fifties, so as a kid, I would watch all the Jacques Cousteau, uh, the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau. Love that stuff so much. Uh, really, there's going to be so many Google searches for the, <laughs> if there's anybody. Oh, and it blows my mind. Yeah, that there are a lot of people that don't know who Jacques Cousteau is, but I get it. It was a long time ago. Yeah, pioneer though. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, trying to think about what it was like for those guys at the time who were they were going and seeing the undersea world in a way that no one had really maybe a handful but uh and also with so much less knowledge of the danger they like the danger they were putting their body in <laughs> the, the no mixed gases like right. they were very much pioneers and you know flying by the suit of their pa pants in a lot of ways yeah just making it experimenting seeing what worked what didn't work uh, it would have been so fun to be at that time working with those guys and just sticking your neck out and seeing what would happen. Of course, it's risky, dangerous, but I... But I that's why people are desperate to work at places like SpaceX, right? Like, same kind of concept. This For is sure. the cutting edge. Mm -hmm. We were going to be the ones, the, the first ones. 
Well, that's always been a huge thing for me, and I suspect you have this too, where experiences, new experiences are so intriguing, and I want them. I used to do a lot of rock climbing and experiment with skydiving. The idea is, you know, you go out and you do something, you get an experience, a perspective that you can't get in any other way. Um, those guys, for sure. I mean, I grew up watching people dive, so getting into the water, I had expectations already. But for someone who is just trying to see what's there, no one's been there, and they're putting on all this gear, jumping in, and they don't know how deep they can go. They don't know what they'll find. Man, that would have been amazing. So what would you say to somebody who wants to go down the path of uh, marine biology um, as, or a, a marine ecologist? What was your PhD was in? It's a subtle distinction. I don't know why I, I make it, but I mean, probably it, just because I love ecology. And so I feel like I need to give it some attention, some press, some good press. But yeah, a lot of people think of, when they think of people looking at animal lives in the ocean, it's a marine biologist. Um, but there are, there aren't a lot of people out there that will hand you a business card and have it say marine biologist on it. People are a little more specific. They can't afford them, right? <laughs> that's, that's the yeah. whole point. They <laughs> well, need that paper for writing grants or something. Sure. But, uh, I remember that was something that I butted my head up with when I was younger and I wanted to be a marine biologist and I started looking at uh, schools and programs to see what was out there. And there are definitely marine biology programs that you can go and look at. But if you ever talk to somebody who's in the field, more often than not, they would tell you that's probably not the way you want to go. How come? I, the, people in the field tell you, don't come here. Well, it's not that. It's <laughs> in your undergraduate years, uh -huh. rather than focusing very specifically on marine biology, even though you're excited about it, and that's mm -hmm. what you really jazz, you want to go do marine biology, so you want to go get your degree in marine biology you're probably going to be better served by getting a general biology degree. More uh, versatility. More versatility. Well, and a big part of it is marine biology. I mean, and this is probably why I like the term marine ecology. Wow, the ocean is huge, and it's so fundamentally different than terrestrial systems. Yeah. That unless you take the time to really understand what salinity has to do with density and what density has to do with buoyancy and what all of those things have to do with, I don't know, distribution of phytoplankton in the ocean. There are all these factors that are critical to understand what the marine environment is like for the organisms that are there. Well, bi biology is dictated by environment, right? The ecology in which any animal is going to find itself in is constantly interacting with what that animal is right mm -hmm. so yeah, you're sure. so you're basically saying like to even have a ability to grasp what is going on with an animal you need to know where it is and what's going on in that scenario exactly okay yeah. what is their world like um i have a, a i'm very fond of the organisms midwater organisms out in the pelagic open ocean the kind of jelly critters that look weird. Oh, we're going to talk. We're going to talk about that. I, <laughs> I still need to get an update on whether or not you've gotten to use your, uh, your blue water setup. Right. Yeah. We, I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, anytime. We'll, we'll save that for a minute though. <laughs> but those, so, those organisms are a perfect example. They live in what to our eyes appears to be a completely, utterly homogenous. Like blue ground. desert. Yeah, there's yeah. nothing there. There's no walls, there's no ceiling, floor, 
is nothing except for a very, very subtle light gradient from above to below. At least to us, that's what right. we see. However, again, and... Is just, this where you tell me that jellyfish are way more intuitive than I am? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. So what do, they, what do they get out of that, or what is so fascinating about it to you? Well, what's fascinating about it to me as an ecologist is yeah. looking at the organisms and asking, oh, how do they make a living in this world? Mm. How do they find mates to reproduce with? How do they find enough food to grow and, and reproduce? Those are fascinating questions when you look at what they've got there, and it looks like there's nothing there. But um, when you understand a little bit more about the environment, mm -hmm. and you start looking at things like density gradients yeah. and the way particles will congregate at, at picnic lines, at areas where the density changes quickly. Did you say picnic lines? Picnocline. Oh, picnocline. So th that's uh, breaks in salinity? Close. Density. Density. Picno refers to density. Oh, okay. And of course, being a diver, you know all about how density affects buoyancy. Yeah, I mean, everybody that I know is a diver is very dense. How <laughs> yeah, is that for sure? But uh, yeah, so areas where there's an, an extreme change in density. Okay. This is the way an oceanographer would describe it. Okay. Based on their data. But all we have to say is there's like a layer. There's a layer on top of another one. And the one below is more dense than the one above. So you've got a, a pair of layers and that interface between them is really tight. Mm -hmm. So that's the uh, more intuitive way to describe this process. But in that area, at that tight layer, you can get a lot of part particles, particulates, organisms, uh, phytoplankton, zooplankton that get stuck there because of their own density is at that level. So if hmm. they float up into the upper layer, they sink because they're a little too dense. If they drop down in the lower layer, they float because that layer is denser than they are. Huh. So you can end up with a thin layer, a very high density. So a concentration of, of something that pe these critters want to eat. Yeah. Or um, if they're smaller critters so that they can find others to reproduce with. Um, oh, so just degree. this weird... So it's almost, it's almost like, um, like not a, I was, how would I say this? It's like a, it's like going to a mountain as like a, as a place to breed, but the mountain is just a, a density break in water. Yeah, that's a that's it's a great like terrestrial a, analog. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like that's not a great. A great might be a little generous <laughs> to my, but like. Uh, but you get the point, right? We're used to in the terrestrial yeah. systems. Organisms find each other because they go to the same place. Yeah, like a there's... bar. <laughs> exactly. Or Tinder. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. But in the open ocean, in the pelagic realm, uh, how do... there's no structure that we can yeah. see. But, they're, they're... They, but they found one. Yeah. And they found one, and that's... So which came first? The tiny little organisms or the, the density <laughs> that told them where to hook up? Oh, gosh. I don't know. This whole... That aspect of uh, pelagic ecology, the thin layer systems, and they're actually found all over the ocean. I've seen a lot of them around um, river mouths, especially, you know, the plumes that come out of a river. There's a... Okay, I totally forgot to do this. Oh, I'm going to do this real quick. All right. Okay. 
So you were at Rivermouths. So, yeah, thin layers. Uh, what I was describing with those interfaces between two density layers. Yeah. Uh, if you go looking in the, the, the literature for this concept, they call them thin layers. Okay. And they're kind of fascinating structures that set up in density layers. You can find them in the open ocean, and there's a lot of interesting data there. But you can really pick them up around river mouths in the plumes. So uh, as the tides go in and out, you get this big burst of lower density water coming out of a river mouth. So I've mm. seen those um, as a grad student. We looked at a lot of those out, off the Hudson River, and as a postdoc, that's right because you were you were East Coast for yeah. your a lot of your studies, right? Correct. Yeah, in New Jersey at Rutgers. Okay. And then I did my postdoc in Portland for. Uh, the Center for Marine and Coastal uh, Modeling and did, Prediction. Did you get to count some fish? I well, feel... I did count some fish for NOAA fisheries. Oh, okay. Kind of in People between like there. People like to count salmon <laughs> up in that part of the way. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so what were you doing back east? Oh, that was grad school. Oh, okay. But like, uh, um, like what kind of oh, research? What were my projects? Well, I initially went there to study deep sea ecology. I've okay. always loved that. And I Again, with kind of with... the extreme environments. Well, yeah, I guess I guess it's extreme, but when you get down there and you actually see what's there, it's not extreme. Right. Like the temperature is always four degrees Celsius forever. Forever. It never changes. There's nothing to eat. That's good, though. You just pack one <laughs> coat. Like, it's good. Yeah. But it's amazing because even though this environment is so boring, there's nothing that happens there. Yeah. I'm exaggerating a little bit. Some stuff happens there. There is a very, very high level of biodiversity, hmm. something that rivals the rainforest. But the organisms that you find that are so plentiful, species-wise... Are, are you telling me there's a rainforest at the bottom of the sea? <laughs> like, what do you mean... What, what, first of all, describe if we were looking at it, what would, what would this biodiversity <laughs> look? Is what it, would it look like? Yeah, I mean, like, I've seen images of like uh deep sea vents mm -hmm. where they have like weird tube tube worms and right. crabs and stuff is that what you're talking about no oh okay <laughs> in fact the diversity around those areas is pretty low okay <laughs> it's just that and when i say diversity i mean if you take a sample and you count how many species you see you don't see many species but what you do see is a ton of hmm. biomass there's lots of life there there's not as much speciation in the, place, the are you talking about the vents, vents around, around the vents, vents. okay yeah. so there's a lot of life just not a lot of variation yeah okay the, if you want to see a lot of diversity species diversity you go away from the vents and you keep going until you see nothing but mud nothing no holes in the mud no nothing just mud and what um, you do what you do is you this take is a the, grab. This is the thing that's exciting? Okay. <laughs> yes. You take a grab, you scoop that mud up, and then you put it in a sieve, and you sieve away the mud, and then what you get are a few little worms, polychaete worms primarily, a big one. Okay. Uh, which are, they're kind of like earthworms, but with little uh, bristles on the sides. Okay. Uh, but they're, when I say little, I'm talking... Microscopic, yeah, oh, okay. small, not microscopic, but, but tiny. lots of polychaete species, lots of um, amphipods like crustaceans, but again, all super tiny. So, mudworms and sand fleas at the bottom of the ocean, yes. but there's 
huge variation. Yeah, there are a ton of species there. Huh. And that really intrigued me uh, as an undergraduate when I started to learn about it. And so when I went to Rutgers, it was to study with a guy there who was one of the one of the grandfathers of that whole discovery. The worm guy. He was one of the the many worm, worm godfather. Guys, yeah. Fred Grassley is awesome. Okay. But so to, what like taking away from that like what i mean was it fulfilling work was it just like what was it like were i mean were you counting worms were you just <laughs> muck were you just using mud and just going through and seeing what's in there well the reason that 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 whole system was compelling to me okay was uh biodiversity as a a quality of a system you know a, a community that you can go look at yeah there are a couple theories recognized acknowledged theories as to how biodiversity establishes itself and there's great models one for um, high productivity areas like the tropical rainforest okay that it's very consistent there's lots of sun lots of nutrients lots of water things grow like crazy okay but what ends up happening is organisms end up trying to avoid competing with each other because if you compete with another species one of you is going to lose extinction what ends up happening is that species end up diverging into their own specific niches okay yeah so in that process they evolve into a different species over time so there's a higher rate of speciation in high productivity low variation type environments it's very consistent and there's always food then there's the model of um there's medium level of productivity, but some disturbance events. The classic example of that are like tide pools in the ocean. Oh, okay. Or you may have heard of the keystone predation theory of sea stars eating mussels. If, if you go to, this was a study that was done, very famous study in the Pacific Northwest, one of these you know, classic ecological treatises on, on the way things work. Okay. But this guy went up and he looked at the tide pools, figured out how many species there were on average in a square meter. I don't remember if that was actually his method, but something along those lines. Yeah. He figured out what the, the, the species diversity was out there with um, in a mussel sea star bed. So kind of the middle layers of the, the intertidal zone. Then the guy goes in, he removes the sea stars from an area of that or I think what he actually did was he put a cage so oh, okay. that the sea stars couldn't get in. And then he came back, went into the cage, and checked the biodiversity within the cage and found that it had gone down. Not just so because by... the sea stars were gone. The reason that in that case was because the mussels took over. They overgrew everything, so you ended up with a monoculture of mussels. When the sea stars were present, they would prey on the mussels. The sea stars, Pisastrocratius up there, they eat them. Yeah. And every mussel that would get pulled off and eaten would make room for a new species, a new organism, an individual to, to land on the rocks and start to grow. So mm. as long as you had a keystone predator, in this case sea stars, out there doing their thing, it in, they ended up help, helping maintain a higher biodiversity. So... Let me let me run this by you. I this begs the question. So one thing that I've noticed is if you go down to the marine preserve in Laguna Beach, you 
not only find like larger fish, uh, but you also find like a greater diversity of sponges. Uh, you see more nudibranchs in a smaller area, whereas places like up around Palos Verdes that are not protected, it feels like there's just less stuff. Is that could could the predation by fishermen and predation by uh, you know spear fishermen taking out these kind of predatory or the larger fish that are going to be attacking smaller fish and blah 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 in the ecosystem? Is that a thing? Also, didn't a study reveals something like that in Hawaii when they culled all the sharks in the '60s after a couple shark attacks. Oh gosh, I'm not familiar with that. But yeah, no, that everything was, that's you said is thing. possible. Okay, it's possible. Oh yeah, that it would seems be, it seems in line. Yeah, it'd be a perfect hypothesis that you could test. That'd be a great study hmm. because you know who knows. Again, I love diving down there because again, is that that's something kind I'd of the put difference. on iNaturalist. <laughs> Stop <laughs> teasing a, me about that. Well, no, listen. <laughs> I, you're you're in the right for promoting iNaturalist. I'm just, I can't deal with another platform. I can't. <laughs> no, I get it. I get um, it. But so so there is, there's scientific evidence to support the idea that by removing predators in an environment, it can have um, kind of negative outcomes for non-predators that are unforeseen. Oh, you, yeah. There's yeah, loads okay. of examples of that. Okay. This is, this is, but, this is kind of the, what do they call it, uh, biological cascade theory or something. This is that weird video which apparently has been misrepresented where they show like the wolves come back into uh, Yellowstone and the rivers change shape, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's that concept, although I, th- I, I heard, I don't know if this is true, that that video kind of misrepresented some of the effects, one of the big effects too is also that beavers were reintroduced and beavers had a huge impact as well um, with the rivers and so forth. Yeah, the, the trophic cascade theory. Trophic cascade, that's what it is. Right, and ecologists will probably like get grumpy and cranky because it's a very, very specific, well-defined process. And Well, and it's also like, it's one of those things that people who want to justify certain policies either way are either full against it or full for it and like put wolves everywhere or you know bring back everything or you know we have to control these you know this is a lie that you know environmentalists are spreading like it's like it's it's strangely become a weird concept that i don't think a lot of people understand but simultaneously have very strong opinions about yeah it's hard to avoid so what do you what do you what what is so what do you know about this that, like, is, when you say it's a very specific process? Trophic cascades? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's super cool. I nerd out on it. And if I can get someone to sit down and listen to me talk about it. I'm, I'm here. Happy. I'm listening. Come on, tell me. <laughs> tell me why the wolves should be there. Okay. Well, well, that's the thing. It has nothing to do with whether or not the wolves should be there. It's just this interesting question. Like, ecologists will deal with fundamental issues that are interesting to them. So, as an example, and I can't really talk about trophic cascades without talking about top-down controls and bottom-up controls on a population. Okay. So, for instance... Speak slowly and clearly (laughs) for me. Yeah. So, as an example, we'll talk about um, wolves and, well, the classic one is uh, bobcats or lynxes Lynxes. and snowshoe hares. Okay, so I've heard that the relationship between those two is very... Once one goes, the other one goes. Right. Okay. Yeah, and there's and this is one of the the famous data sets where 
all of the trapping that was done uh, up in Canada in the you know 1700s, 1800s. They weren't doing scientific studies. They were just counting how many snowshoe hair pelts did I get this year okay. versus the others. But there was, I don't remember the author of it, but if you look at those data and you plot them, there's a very clear response between them. So in other words, if there's a lot of links, then suddenly the snowshoe hair numbers start dropping. And when I say numbers, what I mean is the number of pelts coming in. So if they're and getting... for anybody who doesn't know, a pelt is just a name for the fur of the animal. Yeah. Right. So, and I normally this is where I'd get a piece of paper and a pen and I draw a little, you know, like a chart graphs that show this. But, okay. Yeah, because that's again the way these data are typically portrayed. You got on the time along the x-axis and the numbers of a, of the organism on the y-axis, and you get these squiggles, and when the Squiggles, you mean slopey lines? Slides, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Squiggles, is that a technical yeah. term? <laughs> oh, yeah. So when the... Squiggle class. When the red line, which is the lynx, goes up high, suddenly the blue line, which is the snowshoe hares, starts to decline because there's so many lynxes, they're eating up the hair. Oh, so when you said squiggle, it's like a double helix between the <laughs> yes. two, right? Yes, So exactly. when one's up, the other one's down, the other one's up, the other one's down. Yeah. So I'd mentioned top-down, bottom-up controls. So who is controlling the population level of the snowshoe hare? When the snowshoe hares are high and the lynx starts to increase their numbers, they are exerting top-down control on the snowshoe hare population okay. by preying on them. So they're top-down, they're eating them, now their numbers drop. Now the snowshoe hares can import impart a bottom-up impact on the on the links. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In so, other words, because if the number, they're the prey source. The so if source. something happens to them... Like they reproduce like crazy, and their numbers go up really high, okay. then the links are going to rise up as well. But simultaneously, so, if something happened, like a virus swept through them and killed them all off, the links population would crash. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, so that defines bottom-up top-down <laughs> controls. But trophic cascades are a little bit specific application of this. And some interesting work that was done to elucidate this process was done using something called a chemostat with uh, phytoplankton. And again, it's a little abstract, but okay. just imagine a tank. We're you going on the ride, man. Sure. We're going we're gonna to ride the chemostat <laughs> freeway today. So you got a, a tank uh, with seawater, okay. and there's a phytoplankton species growing in it. One species, that's it. And you get a, um, like a small uh, peristaltic pump that slowly, slowly drips a nutrient into that system. Now, in that system, over time, if you leave it running, the density of that phytoplankton will stabilize. It'll remain the same. In other words, deaths equal reproduction. The density is the same no matter what. It, a neutral a nutrient cycle will balance out eventually. It'll it'll reach an equilibrium. Okay. If you double the input of nutrient, you will see a concomitant increase in the density of the phytoplankton. That makes sense, right? Yeah. You give it more nutrients, the equilibrium switches to a new higher state. So this is an example of bottom-up control by how the rate at which you're bringing nutrients into the system. 
Now, here's where it gets interesting. So let's, right now, you can just change the, the uh, rate of in, nutrients in the system and you see uh, a change in the population. What if you put in a new species that preys on the phytoplankton? You get your top down. Now you've got the systems a little bit different. Now, if when you reach equilibrium, if you have enough nutrients going in so that you're getting enough phytoplankton growth, then that can sustain a population of these zooplankton that are eating it. And again, you keep that rate going in, and eventually it'll equilibrate, and you'll get the same density of, of zooplankton, as phy and phytoplankton density will be stable and perfect. At this point, though, if you increase the rate of nutrient into the system, before we would get an increase in the density of phytoplankton. Okay. However, because there's zooplankton that are eating it, they mow down on that stuff. And what you end up seeing is no change in the density of the phytoplankton. So, but you get a change in the density of the zooplankton. So would so it just bumps it up to the predatory species. Yeah. So when they talk about trophic cascades, it's this sort of thing because then it gets even more interesting. What if you put another species that preys on that zooplankton? Oh, okay. So the quote unquote cascade is the benefits of the increased in the scenario that you're talking about, nutrients, but whatever benefit to the base level of the environment causes the next species up to grow, which causes food for the next species up to grow, which causes a species for the next food to grow. That is all true. But again, the fundamental aspect of trophic cascades that's kind of hard to communicate okay. is the, the flip in top-down versus bottom-up controls. So for instance, when I, add in, when I increase the nutrients, when it's just phytoplankton, you see the phytoplankton grow. They're exerting, they're existing under a bottom-up control. As soon as you put uh, another level, another trophic level, the zooplankton feeding on it, okay. if you increase the nutrients, you don't see a change in the phytoplankton density. They are growing faster. They're reproducing like crazy. Yeah. But the zooplankton are eating them up before they can actually register as a higher density in the study. But the zooplankton, because they're getting all of that food, all that nutrient, their numbers do increase. So there's a flip. If there's no predators there, if you add nutrients to the system, you get an increase in the phytoplankton. Put another layer on, and it changes. Now when you add nutrients to the system, phytoplankton doesn't change. And i got to be careful here. Their numbers don't change what you measure. However, they're reproducing like crazy and getting eaten by the zooplankton. So there's, predate, there's predation. Mm -hmm. So basically all the benefits of the nutrients, correct me if I'm wrong in saying this, all the benefits of the increased nutrition gets passed on to the predators. Yes, you're right. That's true. Okay. But it's not the, the trophic cascade. <laughs> I'm, I'm missing a key thing. <laughs> My gosh, I feel like I'm in school again. I know, and it's a so, hard one. Hold it's on. really hard one to do without drawing let me, diagrams. Let me, let me ask a different question. Okay. So, in this scenario, with something like this happening, uh, where does the top-down come in? Does the top-down happen when 
there is a reduction or well i guess the top down is control would be what the any kind of predation so there's or tons of top down that's why the numbers stay stable is because the top down think of it this way um Let's use some marine examples, some local ones. So things like horn sharks that are going to be cruising around preying on invertebrates. So we know a place you can go diving where there's a lot of horn sharks, right? During the right time, in spring, yeah. Yeah. All the big females come in. They want to lay their eggs to get in the warm water. It's a great time to go out there. Mm -hmm. It's like La Jolla with the leopard sharks. Yes, exactly. Yeah. if there's a lot of horn sharks around, they might not be able to find as much food as they would like. So maybe when they're looking for mates and stuff, they come together, but normally they spread out because they need to find food. And the amount of food they can catch is dependent on what they can forage for over the course of an evening when they're cruising around looking for stuff. Uh, if you personally were able to do something like uh, figure out what they were feeding on preferentially, and go out there and throw a bunch of it out there, you might start to see greater numbers of horn shark hanging out there. There's more food. So they don't have to go off somewhere else looking for better hunting grounds. So they would congregate. They would congregate, yeah. So this is a, an effect of you um, adding some food and seeing a concomitant increase in the numbers of sharks there. Because in that particular example, their, their densities, shark densities, have, are under a bottom-up control by their food source. So in other words... Are they if, exhibiting any top-down control? They're exhibiting top-down control just on the by organisms per, they feed on. Just pretty, okay. So for instance, let's say but we take the reverse tack, you count how many organisms there are that is their preferential food, and then you put a big net around it and throw a bunch of extra sharks in there. They're going to start totally decimating whatever that is and starting to go hungry, you know? Well, so then, because all good mentions of sharks should basically go to this place, uh, Great Whites, California, mm-hmm. the Marine Protection Act. The, I mean, what what do you what would most people anticipate happening to the population of great white sharks if we are protecting, um, you know, mer- the marine mammals that they prey on? Are we? I mean, should we be seeing more sharks and/or shark attacks? Like, would you guess that? I mean, no, nobody can predict, right? Or maybe, or would more seals and sea lions and elephant seals actually decrease the amount of shark attacks that we'd have because the sharks will be focused in the areas where those seals are? Oh man, this is super complex. So shark attacks oh, meaning on people and everything? Or? Yeah, well, no, no, no. Uh, yes. Just, well, okay. I mean, what? let's start with the first one, right? I just threw out a lot of stuff. Are we, I mean, I've heard, I don't know if this is true, I haven't looked at the numbers, are we going to see more gray white sharks in, Cal- in California? In the same way that we have seen shark attacks tick up in like places like Australia, like Western Australia, you know, they were thinking about bringing back the coal of sharks, of all things. Mm. I haven't followed a lot of all of that, so I, okay. I can't really speak specifically. Right, okay. But yeah, it totally follows that if there's an increase in their main prey source, you know, uh, seals, sea lions, elephant seals, then, yeah, it would make sense. You shouldn't be surprised if, after that, you start seeing higher numbers of great white sharks. Yeah. Of course, they're complex. 
and there could be a whole lot of other factors that are weighing in on there. Yeah. Well, it there's been a lot of people who say that there's more California sea lions today than there has ever been mm-hmm. because of protections that, uh, you know, even native peoples hunted them at one point. So they've never really, you know, there's le- less orcas, less great white sharks. And we hit that peak a couple of years ago when we had a, sard- or a crash of the sardine run. And there was a whole bunch of baby sea lions that were coming up on shore. And everybody was like, save the baby sea lions. Mm-hmm. And there was like a couple of biologists over in the side was like, they're going to die <laughs> because there's just too many of them. Mm-hmm. And there's not enough food. It was, that's, that's, that would be a good example of like a good bottom up. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Okay. Because the food source was gone. Okay. Well, I mean, that's, that's an interesting thing about California is I grew up here and I think I grew up, and probably you too, in the time period in the shadow of the movie of Jaws. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right? And Southern California, rarely is there ever a shark attack here. I mean, and California averages like one or two a year, if that. Right. Which is amazing considering how many people are in the water. But it will be interesting. I mean, it, it hopefully it won't, but it'll be interesting to see what the consequences of, like, you know, environmental policy to protect these animals if it sees a drastic change. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting one too. Like you brought up sea lions. One of the characteristics of sea lions is they seem to be totally comfortable hanging around people. Yeah. And that's Speaking of La Jolla. <laughs> yeah. That that the seal wars that happened, seals and sea lions, you know, took over this beach in La Jolla Children's Pool. You know about this. Oh yeah, yeah right. Yeah, Children's Pool. And, um, you know, if there is, you know, charismatic megafauna, such as seals, which look like they are stuffed animals, Mm -hmm. um, are pitted against, you know, people who are spearfishing or scuba diving and trying to go through here, and they're not actively trying to disturb the seals, but for whatever reason, people get very emotionally involved in I remember if you you would search on YouTube, you could find people who were like about ready to go to fisticuffs over, you know, a seal sleeping on the beach and somebody walking past to go into the water, you know, arguing that, you know, you're harassing this animal and this and that. And and then their anger and angst turn into anger and angst towards them, Mm -hmm. you know, by the the people who felt like they were trying to get them out. And it it would got aggressive. For oh, a yeah. while there, it was very controversial. Where I'm from up in Portland, there's been problems with sea lions going all the way up the Columbia River. I've seen to this. The Bonneville Dam to, to feed on all the salmon that's stacked up there. They sit there and they bite them out of the air and stuff, right? And <laughs> yeah. they sit by the fish ladders and, and munch on them. It's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and there are lots of calls to euthanize those animals, get them out of there. They've got all sorts of ways to harass them to try and get them to go away. but. You know, pickens are good, so they have hung out. Well, pickens are good there, but I think part of the reason you see stuff with them acting in those ways is because the regular way, being out in the ocean, there's probably more competition by other seals than there has ever been, right? It forces them out of their normal foraging area. Yeah, because again, they seem to like hanging around people, and we're all over the frickin' place, so it works for them. Whereas somebody like uh, great white sharks that, don't seem to hang around areas where there's a lot of human activity. 
in the same way that sea lions would. Um, yeah. I don't know, man. Up uh, up in the North Coast, there's a couple spear fishermen who have different thoughts on that. Mm. Yeah, there's. Uh, I mean, not that not that great whites are always aggressive. I think great whites are probably nowadays are caught on film by scuba divers and free divers way more than they are ever seen or uh, having a negative interaction with people. Right. Right. Um, I don't know if you saw that crazy video. I think it was a guy in. I think it was South Africa. He was an urchin diver. It looked like he looked like he was on a hookah and he's swimming and he must've had a camera on his hookah line because it was behind him. And he looks back and right when he looks back, right out of the green comes this giant, (laughs) just giant great white shark and just bops him on the top of the head with his nose and keeps swimming. And the guy's just like, what, what's going on? Unbelievable. But I mean, like, they're they're just such a weird animal, but curious and not always aggressive in you know, they, they try to hit a very specific prey species, you know. Right, right. They seem pretty focused on just doing their thing. And the massive amounts of people that are able to go down and cage dive with them in Guadalupe with no real signs of aggression towards the divers. Even in some instances where people are out of the cage, it's when the water's clear, it seems like I mean it it's pretty well established, I should say. Then almost every time a great white shark attacks someone, it's a, a case of mistaken identity. Right, yeah. You know, that's probably the number one question that you get from, I don't know about you, but for me, anybody who goes like, you scuba dive? What's <laughs> the first thing they say? What do you do if you see a shark? And I'm always the same thing. I'm like, don't act like prey. Yeah. You know, just don't, don't freak out. Just hold still and make noise with your air bubbles. It's no big deal. They don't want anything to do with that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, okay, so you... um did all this work and we got onto cascades but coming back <laughs> yes that did all this work and so you came at no it's great <laughs> i love it i just i learned something not not i don't always do that um so you ended up coming back to the west coast in the portland area yeah where you still do you were doing your phd there no no i finished up you my finished PhD, up yeah. and you came over to do i ended up doing totally different stuff than i started out to do okay. uh, the deep sea stuff went by the wayside and i did some other projects that uh, involved a lot of computer modeling okay of ocean currents and the way specifically i was looking at the way ocean currents play a role in where you find giant sea scallops over on the east coast oh okay so it was basically larval transport through current so i ran a bunch of models of circulation of the ocean and then released uh, virtual larvae that had behaviors they would swim up and down on a diurnal cycle figured what, out what, what is what are the larvae of scallops sea scallops look like uh do they are to, they mobile they are eh, somewhat yeah okay they can move upwards and downwards over the course of a day so at night they come up closer to the surface and during the day they move down and filter feeders the totally filter feeders okay. yeah they're villager larvae. They, you'd put it under a microscope and you'd see it. it, uh, it sure, looks like I know it. what villager means. <laughs> sure. I know. But uh, yeah, so those guys, they travel for quite a long time, up to six weeks. So they can travel long distances. But people hadn't, there's no way to really tag them or figure out where they came from. The genetics at that time when I did my PhD weren't developed to the point where you could really differentiate between smaller subpopulations okay. in the scallop beds. So this was an attempt to just use computer models of circulation to predict where larvae end up 
and then figure out how those populations along the coast are connected. And, and was I, this to like help manage a fishery or exactly. like what? Oh, okay. Yeah. So the, what, what were they trying? How would that help? Well, the way it helps, they'd noticed, they'd noticed they close uh, certain areas uh, around George's bank, George's bank, sorry, to um, cod fishing because the cod fisheries were so lousy and they used trawls to catch them. So none of the scallop fishermen were able to go there. And when they did, they started, during the scientific surveys, finding large numbers of scallops starting to develop in those beds. Makes sense. They're not getting fished. But uh, there were suspicions that the larvae that were produced by those populations that were protected were becoming an important source of new recruits in other parts of the system, even down as far as uh, like the Carolinas, or North Carolina, yeah. North Carolina, okay. Virginia. I have to remember. It's been so long. Um, Cape so, Hatteras, north of Cape Hatteras. All those oh, areas. yeah. That, that's North Carolina, isn't it? Cape Hatteras? It's the northern part of North, yeah. Uh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, no, because I, I was diving in Beaufort. Beaufort, North Carolina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Cape Hatteras was one of the places you could, I think you could go out of there to okay. get to some dive sites. But, so that far south. Yeah, that's that's the point where the Gulf Stream diverges from the coastline. Okay. So everything above that is a very different system. It gets cold in the winter time. Uh, it's fascinating from an oceanographic standpoint. But in my particular case, all I needed to do was I, I ran these models and got a bunch of plots of these trajectories that the larvae took, like a, a spaghetti plot is the term for it, because it just looks like a mess. And I used some cool stats this network theory mm-hmm. um got to actually utilize linear algebra who to thank you know it actually became useful for something. you were the guy who used it after <laughs> high school that's awesome but yeah so i did that um, and here's where it became useful i was able to define regions of the coast that were well connected so in okay. other words if you if you didn't know the regions that were well connected and you established a, a no fishing zone uh-huh. in an area that was, let's say you've got, imagine an oval-shaped, well-connected area. If you established a no fishing zone on the, the eastern half of it, and no fishermen were there, it would still have impacts on the western half of that area. Because by fishing down the adults, their larvae would not then be transported to the western portion of that well-connected area. So if you are wanting to protect the species and you're going to use a a fishing closure, you really need to define the entire area that's well-connected and protect the entire area. So isn't that the general idea behind most marine protected areas is that you create a kind of mother area that will will seed the areas around it, exactly. depending on how it is. So the concept is, is, say, the eastern part of the areas where all the adults are. Protect that. That'll keep seeding over into this other area regularly, and that other area is where you can fish, and depending on how the eastern part that's protected is doing, you'll get better fisheries over there. It's exactly the case. Okay. The problem comes, though, is what if the area that you are protecting is dependent on an adjacent area for new recruits. 
So a well-connected area that's well-connected to another area that's well-connected to another area. Yeah, that area may Are we back to Trophic Cascade? Because I'm going <laughs> to freaking lose my mind if we're back to Trophic Cascade. I can't go there again, man. I'm serious. I get it. I get it. Okay. It's hard. I think visually, so uh, I'm seeing pictures in my head. Trying no, no, to no, but it's, it. it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a similar concept, right? It's dominoes. Yeah, things are connected, but, for sure. But it's probably not my instinct on this and correct me if i'm wrong is that it's not straight dominoes it's not like you know it's dominoes the scallops that... in maine are mm-hmm. feeding the scallops in you know whatever south of maine new hampshire which is feeding the scallops that are in you know virginia which are feeding the scallops that are in north carolina there's still they can still repopulate themselves a little bit too locally right some of them yes. some of them can some of them not so much right so it just turns out that if you if you understand the dynamics of the system, you can be a lot smarter about which areas you protect, which ones are more critical as a source of larvae, and some are never a source of larvae, but often receive loads of them. If that's the case, if you've got an area, which is what I typically found in areas south of the Hudson River area, like south New Jersey, those areas uh, tended to receive larvae from the georges bank era area on some years where there was a certain type of current yeah exactly okay so you could predict that and it related to you know the east coast version of the el nino la nina event and all that stuff so you had some predictability with it but it was a super fun you know project to work on but that's uh, cool so how much when they're talking about this stuff marine protected areas how much of it do you listen to and go like, oh, yeah, that seems reasonable? And how much do you just like want to pull your hair out? Like, this is bad policy or like, what's like, a, I want a controversy. What's the most controversial, controversial environmental protection thing you've heard of, if there is one? Uh, you told me I'm not supposed to defame people. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. I did say that. Uh, well, okay. Let's just say maybe not one that is, I say controversial, not wrong. Sure. Not 100% wrong, and the people don't know anything. But, like, what is one that you know of, like, if people were to look at one? I mean, I think, so if I think of a controversial, uh, in, well, it's not, it's not a, it's a mining program, but it's not environmental. It's the pebble mine up in, that sits on the very edge of the single most plentiful salmon run up in uh, Alaska, right? Mm-hmm. They want to put a mine we, which is going to have, uh, basically a giant pool of poisonous water uh, sitting on the topsoil where it rains all the time, where there's earthquakes all the time. It's going to be held back by de- uh, levees. Oh, yeah, and every once in a while things flood. Like, there's just no way it's not going to do it, but some people are just pro-work, pro-mine, you know, uh, pro mine, yeah. you know, for all the benefits that mines do, and mines do bring benefits. And then other people are just losing their minds because they're like, this is the one place you should not do this, right? right? There's some kind of weird calculus that goes on in people's brain where they think, yeah, we know it's bad, but it's going to generate this much money, and so it's worth it. And the other group but, of but people that's say, some, that's, that's some... ridiculous. It's not worth it. Or it's going to produce so many more costs in the future having to deal with the cleanup. Well, it's, it's, that's weird, right? Because you get into the macroeconomic distribution of your values, right? Yeah, and I got to be honest with you, most of the time, couldn't care less about the stupid economics. So in terms of... <laughs> well, listen, man. 
sounds like somebody who's not poor. No. <laughs> I mean, I, I can see I, I can see why economics can be important. I just don't think it's important at all costs. Yeah. Right? Like the economics of things and there are there are certain risks that seem more reasonable than other ones. This one doesn't seem reasonable to me. Yeah, and there are some things that some damages that can't be fixed. Yeah, that's a, so that's just don't a big do one. it. You know, and and there's certain there's certain species and things that are more fragile than others. Like salmon are a very unique species in that sense that they have one river. Like the from river to river, the species of salmon vary. Like it's very particular. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's sometimes salmon jut off and go up a different river than they were born in but for the most part they stick to the same river so you destroy that river you've just wiped out an entire population yeah a significant chunk of the genetic diversity of the species yeah and obviously being from the pacific northwest you know salmon were always around that was always something that i was aware of and heard about but it's a great example of of some of those salmon runs are really healthy and it fine and some of them are at risk but everyone's used to seeing them up there fishing salmon is a very common activity people don't necessarily understand the dynamics of those populations up there and all they've got to to depend on is a scientist telling them hey look we need to protect this and their experiences i don't know so what is your what do you think do you think that that is a problem with a lot of, well, maybe, I don't know if it is a problem or not. I, I'm, I'm ask, I just have to ask the question. Is it a problem that scientists and biologists and people who raise these concerns, and maybe you could argue environmentalists, uh, don't always articulate the consequences or how, what do I want to say? They don't communicate the, the dynamic aspect of it very well, and that's why there can continue to be controversy? Or is it that just the audience doesn't want to hear it? Or, I mean, what do you, how do you read that scenario? Well, I mean, you've heard me trying to explain some of these concepts like trophic cascades. It's hard. Okay. So that plays a role for sure. But ugh, this is starting to diverge into politics. And, well, and, let's, and I will let's... say it briefly. I will say <laughs> it very briefly. There does seem to be a weird backlash against scientists. Yeah, that is something that, 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 that is the well experts i think experts, there's a yeah, i think sure. there's a lot of american institutions that right now people are questioning for a multitude of reasons notwithstanding some of those reasons being very legitimate right well, some of sure. them some of them not so much but some of them and then some of them you know some of the reasons being questioned go way off into very strange things like pizzagate which is just like whoa <laughs> You're like, that's just the internet got you, man. But I do think there's a little bit of a backlash, and it is unfortunate because if you, and it's, the sad part is people are not as scientifically literate as maybe they could benefit from being because it would benefit us all to understand how things work better. I feel the same way about history and politics, right? Like, many people have opinions about politics, but many of them also don't necessarily know exactly how the system's supposed to work or has worked in the past. 
And so gut feelings and intuitions take over and fill in the gaps. I think the same is true about science in a lot of ways, right? And I, I find it to be a real shame in that, you know, I can't be an expert on everything. I yeah. really can't. So I have to de- be able to depend on other people to give me their, their honest opinions about the way they see things. I think the problem is that there are a lot of people that have ulterior motives. And we're starting to recognize that. But uh, it's, it's like the baby's being thrown out with the bathwater in this case yeah. because there's some dishonest people. Now, everybody, every scientist who says your best protection for us as a society to deal with COVID is to wear masks. Because someone said that, it becomes called and well, it's, it's they're just trying to control us or maybe they're with the mask lobby. We're so suspicious of everything. Well, in fairness, that one <laughs> flip-flopped a little bit because there was like masks don't matter in the beginning when they were trying to preserve them and then all of a sudden everybody should be wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. It was, it, you know, it's, again, messaging, right? Mm-hmm. Like if they would have came out and said, guys, if you can make masks at home, go for it. That's great. Any covering, it's not perfect, but it will help. Like I felt like there was a level of inconsistency there that was self-harming you know what i'm saying in the in the message Mm -hmm. which is unfortunate and people are upset and i understand why they're upset because uh nobody likes to be lied to nobody likes to be treated like they well let me rephrase nobody likes to be treated like they can't make a decision on in the same scenario lots of people have been making really bad decisions so i i don't know what the answer is there well Keep in mind, yeah, there's not science. I mean, there's science, of course, but it was a new disease, so people had to understand its dynamics. So the the specialists they took their best stab, tried to understand, and made their best estimates about the how to handle it, and they could be wrong. But in terms of the sciences, like uh, talking about the pebble mine or talking about salmon, when people study these systems. For decades, yeah, and they do a scientific study. They go out and they gather data. Um, they've got a methodology that they've done. They they did the work. They compiled it. They synthesized it, and they they wrote a paper. They submitted it to a journal. The journal took it, and they said, "This scientist over here, that other guy, and this one both know this field really well. They have them read it." Those guys all read it, and they say, yeah, it looks like they did a good job, but they need to do this. So it goes through this whole process, and then it's published. Bang. That is how scientific knowledge is generated. It's not a person. It's not a personality who did a YouTube video that people can watch and buy into it or not. It's a consensus from the scientific community. That carries a great deal of gravitas, and it's frustrating to me that people question it. Obviously, there are people with ulterior motives. Someone might do a study on a drug, and they might mess up the data to make somebody happy. I, I, I agree. That well, there's, there's some very famous examples, right? Yeah, like, for sure. That, that go both. I mean, let's go, let's go both directions with this. There's... Mm. Uh, manipulative ways in which certain drug companies have tested their products against 
like placebo instead of testing it against a cheaper version a cheaper competitive competitive drug right to make it seem like oh this is this much better than placebo when realistically it's not really that much better than say another drug that does the same thing that's an example of how people are doing it to make money right that's the ulterior motives sure but then you also have people like you know the most famous guy who did the whole study that quote unquote figured out that vaccines caused autism which was totally debunked and has repeatedly been de- uh, attempted to be repeated and it's no truth to it and yet people still quote it right mm-hmm. so that's why i say like scientific literacy and understanding just even you talking about that is it would be great that people had enough knowledge or were came out of you know high school or college versed enough to be able to like we almost all need a new and improved bullshit filter Mm -hmm. right like you need to have the ability to go i don't i'm not an expert on this but i know enough to tell if this person is fibbing a little bit because it's never it's never the person who's out and out telling a straight lie who gets you it's the person who tells a half lie Mm -hmm. you know it's the guy who caught a fish, but he says it's a couple inches bigger than it actually was. It's not the guy who tells you that they caught a shark, you know? So I, it, I agree there's a backlash. I understand why there's a backlash. I'm, I'm, I'm also hoping that we get to a place where people are able to fact check things better, you know, and be aware of things more, especially when there are, like, like we're talking about with, you know, extreme and certain environmental things like there are there can be real long standing consequences. There has been environmental disasters in the U.S. that sure. last 50 to 100 years, especially, you know, when we're talking about, you know, poisoning groundwater and, you know, there's all kinds of stuff, you know, uh, the dams. Look at the dams, the New Deal, all the dams that they put in during the New Deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes cut off salmon runs, not to bring it back to salmon, like that's the only fish in the sea. But, uh, you know, now there's this whole process of undamming a lot of the rivers because of that very reason. So it, it, it is unfortunate, but I just hope that, you know, one thing that'll come out of this weird transition into this digital world where anybody can create content and everybody can have an opinion and it's really hard to tell the difference between somebody who has worked their entire life doing something to be an expert and somebody who just made a video. Mm-hmm. You know, and one may be a very good communicator and the other who's an expert may not be a very good communicator. So one may be more persuasive, right? Definitely. And one may even use things that are kind of true, but then the crutch of the argument is actually sending you in the idea that's false. So like... We all need to get better at this, and hopefully coming through this time period, we'll develop a culture that will be able to do that. that would, that's my hope, at least. For sure, yeah. And in the meantime, I'm just going to try and get underwater. Yeah. <laughs> Where none of that, I don't have to deal with any of that. No, it's so nice. Calm, there's no phone, no nothing. Uh, well, so, and that's, that is something that I think is going to be a huge sell for anybody who grew up in this age is finding sports and activities in which they can turn off. 
I think that's going to be a new luxury idea where you can, you know, this sounds very new agey, but just be in the moment, mm-hmm. you know, and there's so few, like there was a time hundred years ago where you were just dying to see people. Now people harass you on your phone. People harass you in life. Like if you live in a big city nowadays, you can't get away from people, mm-hmm. you know, and if you have a phone, you can't get away from people. I think there's going to be a lot of these alternatives where people are going to kind of separate out and focus on these tasks. And that's where I see like the ocean is the frontier for that. Yeah. And it's so close. It's yeah. such a, an alien world that you can drop into and it's right there. It's right there. So bringing it back around, because mm-hmm. again, we are off on a ta- tangent here. Uh, so you, you went up to the Pacific Northwest. You did that. We, um, you were a scuba instructor for a period of time. Oh, much later. Oh, well, my postdoc. Wait, did I did I skip did I skip anything? <laughs> well, no. I always want to talk about my old work because it was super fun. Oh but well, let's do it. My postdoc work in Portland. I mentioned that I used uh, circulation models. Yes. Uh, with sea scallops over on the east coast, I did the same sort of thing in the Pacific Northwest with the Columbia River. Oh, sweet. So running models of the Columbia River and looking at the way those affected uh, salmonid, particularly the juveniles as okay. they're moving through the system moving out to the ocean. Um, but uh, in terms of stories, those are, I just wanted to make sure you knew I did it. Yeah, it <laughs> that's fine. Check. <laughs> okay. But yeah, um, I did that for about four years. Uh, that was fun. Um, but after that, uh, I had a few years where I did a, a strange thing where I taught kids how to sword fight with homemade swords. And then I started <laughs> being a scuba instructor. A natural transition. Yeah, clearly. Sword fighting. Well, it's up. Portland, you know. It is Portland. Right. It is It is a very, uh, I want to say unique, but I feel like that doesn't quite capture it. I was going to say it's its own place. Like, there's no, I don't think there's a place in the world that's quite like Portland. You know, Austin is always accused. Portland and Austin are supposed to be. I feel like Austin way. leans into it way too much. Like, <laughs> they really want to be Portland level, but yeah. I feel like Portland's just homegrown. It just is what it is, man. Yeah, it was a great place. I, I grew up there. I love Portland. Yeah. It's very different now, but... Well, it experienced it's, a massive influx of wealth. Yeah. Like so many cities, right? And it's crowded. It's very crowded yeah. now. I do have to say their parking meter system is one of... Like, I was a little hesitant to download the app. But oh, they app, have app they, they I, have I an app. I, huh. Last year I went up to Portland. <laughs> uh-huh. They have a, I think it's, it's a ridiculous name. It's called like, like Parking Kitty. <laughs> like that's the app. Okay. But you can just pay for parking on your phone. You put a credit nice. card in and you just hit your license plate and it gives you an area in which you can park for one hour. So you're not like nailed down to a space. Yeah. Oh, nice. I was... I was pleasantly surprised. I've lived in a lot of places, and I always end up, when I go back to Portland, I'm like, God, it's so much easier here. I feel like like the city is nice to me no, that's in good. Portland. It's just home, man. Yeah, of course. Everybody has that, wherever they're from. Mm-hmm. So you were a scuba instructor, or are, I'm sorry, still are, unless your dues have lapsed. No, um, I'm all Yeah, I have current. <laughs> uh so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go scoop instructor, and then I want to talk about your blue, blue water rig. Oh, sure. So how long, or you became a scoop instructor when? When did you become a scoop instructor? Ugh. Well, I became a dive master. That was when I first started 
working with students in 2000. Okay. 2001. Oh, you were in the game way before me. Well, but uh, was very active for a few years, but didn't get much after that. Um, it, and then was, I got, this, was this up in Portland? In Portland, yeah. So we would dive usually up in Washington. But we would often find little weird places like in waterfalls and the Columbia Gorge and stuff. There's oh, okay. Any place there's water, we want to go see what's there, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I got certified as an instructor in, I think, 2017. So fairly recently. Yeah, um, went out to Cozumel and did the program out there. Oh, yeah, you know, just like Washington. <laughs> exactly yeah. the same water. It was fast. Uh, yeah. But yeah, when well, you don't have to put on, like, a dry suit and, like, a heated core and all the rest of it, it's a lot it easier. Very nice, yes. Yeah. But, yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was thinking about career paths, and uh, the sciences are a little bit difficult to to stay in unless you're going to try and, you know, be a tenured professor somewhere, and it wasn't really in the cards for me with my background. In terms of, of history, I didn't have a lot of published work. And, so I thought, well, I've got try something. the experience here yeah. in the sciences, marine science. I would love to uh, get my scuba certification, or instructor certification, get some time on boats. And boy, I'll just, I'll just retire in the tropics somewhere. I'll, I'll live in a grass hut. So yeah, why not? Shorts every day. The grow dream. my hair out. Yeah. So I understand that vision of scuba <laughs> instruction. Yeah. How did that line up with the reality <laughs> of the actual business? <laughs> yes. No, no, it's very different. Yeah. So, I mean, would you, teaching people how to dive, fulfilling for sure, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I love to teach. Yeah. Um, that was my primary job uh, from when I started, like, 16 yeah in environmental science camps in, in portland from that point on teaching was what i loved and so what would you say is like the biggest challenge for teaching to, scuba yeah hmm well it's the best part too is to find a student who's having a really hard time and trying to understand it and figure out how to guide them through the steps so that they can be successful it's hard and, and i'm not successful every time well, but, but when I am, it's not for everybody. It feels good. Yeah. Diving is definitely not for everyone. And that's been one of the important lessons I've learned is to recognize when it's clear, no, this person needs to be let off the hook. They and don't sometimes, and sometimes you get put in that scenario where they're looking for you to tell them, yeah. listen, don't, mm-hmm. you, this is not. And it's an interesting experience because it feels like it should feel wrong, <laughs> but everybody's okay with it when that happens. It's almost like a relief. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But on the other hand, when you get those people, when there's a person who's struggling and they get to that point where they accomplish their goal, the reward from that is also really good. Definitely. Very fulfilling. Yeah. But even the, the students that, pick it up without any trouble. Those are always a joy to work with too because when you're out diving, you're not focused on getting these skills done. You're actually exploring and pointing out interesting things. 
lifting up a rock and finding some fascinating organism down there. And that's very rewarding as well. So what would you say is your coolest find underwater? No, oh, my favorite thing was uh, probably what I was doing. Can you say a polychaete worm, so help me God. <laughs> oh, I have a good polychaete worm uh, oh, story. Oh, okay. But I won't tell <laughs> But I tell you, it was three feet long, and it's, and I made. Wait, me what are we? Where are we going with this? <laughs> no, no. Uh, but one of my favorite ones was I had a a fourteen year old student. He was doing his last open water dive for certification. He traveled here with his mother from England. Hmm. They happened to be on a vacation, and he was getting certified, and so he wanted to do his his last open water dives in warm water instead of in England. So he. He just showed up. Oh. I was like, okay, this is a 14-year-old kid. We're going to go diving. I've never gone diving with him before. He was a champ. He was great. But on the fourth dive, it was at Vets Park, and we were ending the dive and coming up from the deep part, heading up uh, this shelf there, right at the edge, and I see a beautiful uh, sea pin, uh, colonial Nidarian. They're really cool. Yeah. So I turned around and said, hey, you want to see this cool sea pin? And I looked past him, and, and there was uh, a shark, a big shark. <laughs> and from the perspective I saw it, it was definitely, it looked like a baby great white or something. It had that Which we nose. sometimes see here in Southern California, usually about, usually about six to eight feet long. Mm-hmm. When we get a really warm El Nino. It heats up the waters in Mexico to the point where it forces them up here. So sometimes we get a lot of them. I've heard the stories and I've always wanted to see them. And I thought, oh, this is my moment. And so I'm looking at my student and I'm looking back behind him about 15 feet away. And Did he sense that you were totally ignoring him? (laughs) (laughs) No, I told him, I gave him the signal, look that way. And uh, he looked that way, and the shark came at us, and about 10, 15 feet uh, swerved off to the side. And as it did, I saw it had a very, very long uh, tail. Oh, not a gray white. It was not a gray white. It was a thresher. But I don't which, care. Which about is a 10 foot long thresher. That's about as rare. Yeah. Or maybe even, I would actually argue seeing a thresher underwater might even be more rare. Yeah, I would never expect to see that. They're super skittish. But I, I signaled to this kid, I said, come on, and swam after that shark as fast as I could, and good on him. He totally went for it. So I happened to have a little, my camera thing, and I snapped a bunch of lousy pictures of it, but at least I had some No, you, you want that picture, <laughs> even if it is a bad one, because yes. none of us would believe you. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I didn't believe it. But uh, that was such a great experience for him. I was so glad that I was with a student, and I was so glad that I was with a student that was not terrified and was willing to chase down a shark in the middle of the ocean. It was great. He probably didn't even know what he was chasing. He's like, <laughs> he said, I'm just following my if you, Dude, those things blend in. Yeah, they do. It's pretty hard amazing. to see, especially, especially threshers, because they, I don't think there is, uh, what is it, uh, countershaded. As a as a great white, right. they don't have the dark and the light, so you don't get that contrast along the lateral line. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, you know, from what I've seen, the they're just kind of a pale gray that just fades into the blue. That's what this looked like. They're like yeah. a stealth bomber <laughs> underwater, man. It was cruising pretty slow, so we were able to to track it for a while. 
but eventually this was at this particular site that's parked i'd mentioned we were right up at the edge of that that shelf which so, is starts at about 40 feet and then mm-hmm. drops to about 60 and then slopes off at like 300 yeah exactly over the course of a couple hundred yards and the shark was right there at about 40 and it was swimming offshore so here i am an instructor with my 14 year old student kicking madly out to sea <laughs> at a 40 feet depth and i finally said oh it's like <laughs> this 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 is yeah this could go this isn't great but that kid was great he totally and then his he oh he's such got a, a good story for life his mom yeah yeah story for life <laughs> that's amazing yeah okay what's your polychaete worm story oh man uh, that was a, another buddy of mine. We went on a dive Vets Park because you see the weirdest stuff at Vets Park. It is a strange sight. Yeah. Uh, it was a night dive. Went out uh, to the surface, turned on our lights. All of a sudden, there's a three-foot polychaete worm swarming us and batting, banging into us. So again, a polychaete worm, think of an earthworm, but they have these structures on the sides of every segment. They're called parapodia, and they're like a little flap with bristles on it and a lot of these polychaetes those bristles are sharp and toxic so many divers will be familiar with fire worms yes that's a polychaete but aren't they those are caribbean Mm -hmm. yeah okay yeah this is not a i mean they're like i'd already told you polychaetes there's a huge diversity of polychaetes uh even in shallow waters but definitely in the deep sea but uh this particular i've i've Handled loads of them. Polychaetes are cool. One of the coolest things about them is they have jaws. Really? Yes. Like, like are we talking mandibles? Kind of like, uh, kind of like crabs or like uh, if you uh, saw them, crane mantises. Kind if of you saw one, you would say, yeah, that looks munchers. like a mandible. They're technically not mandibles. They're um, they're usually paired, okay. and they are inside the head. I mean, they're just a tube, right? Yeah. They're like a water balloon tube. So what they do is they squeeze their body, and it forces their mouth in to turn inside out. And they will call this uh, everting their their pharynx. I'm sorry, what did you just say? They evert their pharynx. They squirt, and this thing pops out, and it's a different color. It looks very obscene. And then as it gets to the final little bit of its extension, boom, it opens up, and there are these two black, jaws oh is this so is this reminiscent or maybe a kind of relative have you seen the bobbit worm that is a polychaete okay so that's a polychaete so the kind of mandibles that we're talking about although the bobbit worm always has them out from what i understand correct yeah but you say it will pop out like that what 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 do they eat with Uh, those do they grab small fish they'll eat other polychaetes um some of meat fish, obviously, bobbit worm does. Yeah. They'd be more likely to eat a dead fish. Oh, okay. I had a big one in my marine tank about a foot long that would just eat on the food that the fish ate. Uh, there's a lot of species that eat different things. Some of them are herbivorous. Not all polychaetes are predatory. How? Three feet long. But it came along three feet long, and that's what was what, in my head. What's was, the diameter of the... Are we... Oh, jeez. So... About I'm an inch up, and a like half? A ping pong ball. Around. Yeah. yeah. An it inch and a half big. diameter. That's a thick worm. And I was, while it was swarming me, I was trying not to freak out because I had a, a, my friend with me and I didn't want him to freak out. But all I could think of is, I don't want to get bit by this thing. Yeah, that one probably has a set of jaws. I'm thinking I have seen small ones 
that are maybe five or six inches, uh-huh. and they're you know two spaghetti noodles thick. Right, right. Yeah, like I'm not afraid of those mandibles. <laughs> no, but an inch and a half. That's and every polychaete I ever see, I, in the back of my mind is I wonder if this is one that has the bristles that are going to get under my skin and sting. So I get nervous. I love them. And many of them, I know I'll pick them up and hold them and everything. But most of the time, if I come upon a, a new polychaete, I treat it pretty respectfully. But this thing was all over us. That's weird. We turn on our lights and it really liked it. And it even followed us to the bottom and swarmed around. I took some videos of it, but it uh, reminded me of the, oh, in the Princess Bride, the shrieking eels. It was just like, <laughs> <laughs> the shrieking eels reference. Okay. Yes. Okay. So uh, that's just, that, that's the stuff that nightmares are going to be made out of. Thank you. I'm going to have and, a nightmare about a three foot long polychaete worm that's poisoning me and trying to bite me in half. And since then I learned more about them. I think they're pile worms is what they were called. And normally they just hang around on, on substrates, like around pilings and dock. Oh, and then, literally pile worms. Yeah. And then when they go cruising like that, it's because they're looking for love. They're in their epitope ah. phase, and they're out looking for other ones to mate with. So you had a little uh, polychaete pheromone on you or something. Apparently, because it was all over us. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> now I want to talk about this blue water rig. Okay. So for people who don't know, there is a contingency of people who like to be underwater. Uh, and they, like you said earlier, these areas in the ocean that are just open and blue, but still have kind of what, what, what one would describe as unusual looking critters that are floating around in it. Is that a fair? Absolutely. We're yeah. talking about jellyfish or things that have jellyfish like structures, but maybe not tentacles. And they're like, have valves and to propel themselves and well there's certainly jellyfish but there's well there are jellyfish but there's other things like how do you explain a sulp to someone (laughs) or a parasome right did i say that right parasome yeah yeah uh um i love explaining them to people i probably take way too long in doing it okay you know i I, earlier i was talking about diversity right Mm -hmm. species diversity there's a Another concept, which is uh, disparity, where there are a lot of, dis- you can have a high diversity of a bunch of organisms that are all polychaetes. Yeah. They're all essentially kind of the same thing, but they are unique species. In the open ocean, though, it's more like there's uh, a higher disparity of organisms. There's radically different organisms out there, and a lot of them look alike, which is very bizarre. You know, for what, instance, what do you mean they're? Radically different, but they look alike. That seems well, like an salps, oxymoron. Salps and jellyfish. That's a perfect example. Okay. So jellyfish, those are in the phylum Cnidaria. They're incredibly simple organisms. They don't even have a gut that goes all the way through their body. They're basically just a mass of mesoglia, of jelly, and the living part of a jellyfish is a layer of cells surrounding the outside of that mesoglia. The outside? Yeah. So I thought the, the, the cells on the top part of the bell of a jellyfish is just the gel. Are alive. Oh, those are alive. Just one layer of cells. And then on the underside of the bell, there's one layer of cells. 
that goes up across the lower part of the bell and onto the inside where the gut is. And uh-huh. they, that one layer of cells lines the gut. And then, of course, there's tentacles and there's cells on the tentacles. Right, that's the stinging cells. That's why they're nerdiria. Yeah, but they are uh, Super incredibly simple. simple organism. All right, and then you get a salp. Salps are actually related to us. They are... (laughs) Anybody (laughs) who wants to know how bizarre that sounds, go Google what a salp looks like. And that doesn't make any sense. You're going to have to... What? (laughs) How are they related to us? Um, They look like... I mean, they look like uh, if a jellyfish mated with a bell pepper. Yeah. Like, that's... That's a good analogy. Yeah, it's, they're kind of a bell pepper shape, mm-hmm. but they're kind of clear. Right. And there's a little seedy looking part inside, so it reminds me of bell pepper. But mm-hmm. how, I mean, we must have broken off from the evolutionary tree millions of miles, years ago, hundreds of billions of miles, years ago. Okay, uh, maybe not hundreds of billions. Hundreds but, of millions, for sure. Yeah, yes. but like, what, how are we related to them? Well, there's... They're there's, certainly not mammals. No, 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 no. Yeah. Um, in terms of being a chordate. So we have what? a chordate. You, you know, you're familiar with the term vertebrate. Yes. I'm sure. Okay. Vertebrata is a subphylum of the phylum chordata. He's yawning. Ian's yawning right now. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm just like, I'm like, I need more oh. oxygen to the brain to understand all this. <sighs> Breathe it in. <laughs> all right. So, okay. So what is the characteristics of this? There's some of them are kind of loose, bizarre. No, no, that's very clear. But okay. So, for instance, one of the the characteristics we share with them as a as a fertilized egg starts to divide, right? So it starts with a fertilized egg, a zygote, that divides into two cells. Then those two cells divide into four cells, and then those four cells divide into eight. There is a process that happens from four to eight cells that one large amount of the of the animals on this earth do and a few of the other ones don't and if you imagine uh four four ping pong balls four balls in your hand let's say they're spouting off four below all right you have to visualize this If um, you do a twist with the lower balls, they settle up tightly to the upper one. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. That process um, is... Oh, man. I'm going to forget. <laughs> Complicated. No, no. It's, and also very obscure. <laughs> it's obscure, but uh pretty sure it's all the protostone. So things like earthworms, crabs... Um, uh, these guys and a whole bunch of other phyla, they do that twist when they go from four to eight cells. Okay. Everybody else, they just stack. So the, the cells are all in line with each other. And when I say everyone else, what I mean is chordates and echinoderms, you know, sea urchins right. and things. Yes. We actually are, have a distant ancestor with those guys as well. Okay. And then a few other ones that most people don't know. But that's like phyla. the basic. That's, that's a super basic one. Here's yeah, another but, one. Here's another one. All right. So as the cells divide further, 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 and it gets to be a ball, and then one part of the ball starts to make a little dimple that goes in, and then it goes all the way to through the other side, right? And that's 
what we basically are, right? As a, a dimple a donut. that goes all the way. Th- okay, yeah. I was like, this is a donut. It becomes a donut, and right, that's just what say we donut. topologically are. We're a donut. We got a gut that goes all the way through. Oh, that's as we're developing. We okay. start off as a donut. That first dimple uh, for organisms like uh, the crustaceans, uh, the insects, worms, all those guys. That dimple is the forms the mouth eventually. Okay. In the adult organism. Those are the protostomes, early mouths, protostome. The other ones, it forms the butt. Those are the deuterostomes, um, late mouth. And I always love the deuterostomes. I always remember that because it sounds like doo-doo. That, mouths. that makes sense. Yeah. We're deuterostomes. And so Speak are... Speak for yourself, sir. <laughs> Speak for doo-doo. yourself. Uh-huh. So butt first, mouth first. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's another thing we have in common with them. But when you get down to it, the real interesting thing about the salps is in their larval stages, they possess a very primitive backbone called a notochord. Not only that... Sounds like a spinal cord. Is that kind of deal or no? Yeah. Is it, is it nerves? It's, um, as we're developing as embryos, we start off with a, a structure. It's cellular, a notochord. But uh, there's bone uh, development around it, ossification, and you get a spinal cord over it. Okay. But there are a lot of organisms that still maintain a notochord, like hagfish, or some of some of the organisms. There's a, you know, salps, there's another organism out there in the open ocean that you might not know about, larvacians, appendicularians, that um, are kind of like a salp that never develops to its full adult stage. It just remains a larva with a little notochord. And they make a mm. mucus snot ball that they use to filter phytoplankton. Uh, but they look like a tadpole. They've got this primitive notochord. That's a feature that these guys all have. But um, other features of chordates are uh, a pharyngeal chamber that's perforated. Think gills on the side of a fish. Okay. That's a, a trait that a lot of organisms that are, will manifest at some point in their lifespan. Salps are basically a big throat. So you'd mentioned they look like a, a bell pepper. That structure that you're seeing is effectively a throat. Okay. So they're an organism that's ditched all the other aspects of their body morphology to become a throat that slowly moves through the water, filtering phytoplankton out for food. So just to be clear, when you said we have something in common with them, I was imagining like at one point they had a hand <laughs> that like de-evolved or like was the remnants of the hand oh i follow you no no it's not no, 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 like, yeah. i was like these are very obscure <laughs> like people had to really try to make a connection here oh yeah that amount that's a people who are doing that embryology work trying to map out uh how organisms were related based on how they developed i guess that's interesting to know story. you can kind of evolutionarily say these ones like that's probably advancing our understanding of the where certain species broke off right? yeah it was uh you can read about it the idea is uh, uh, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny this was a, a scientific concept that's been refuted but it was it was big stuff back in the day. Yeah. And the idea of ontogeny is the development of an individual mm-hmm. from being a zygote to an adult. You're saying that process recapitulates the evolution, the phylogeny. 
Um, oh. So you can recreate. So this figure. is where people say things like, oh, the lizard brain. And the idea would be that limit lizards are less primitive. So, you know, we have a lizard stage where we're developing, where we're like a lizard and that kind of thing. Yeah. The, um, our brain is like a, there's an inner part that's a lizard and then we added stuff and added stuff. But they, that's obviously since been disproved. I wouldn't say it's disproven. Uh, there's what people do is they try and understand homologies. So, for instance, I just told you that a salp what is, is a giant throat, um, a similar form, a homology. Okay. So homologous uh, traits. What's another good example of it? Okay, so salp is a similar traits. So understand why things have similar traits, so to speak. Yeah. The, okay. They and have... so it's like a giant throat. Mm-hmm. Okay, where are we going with the giant throat? Uh, Did he, like, narc on the president or something? <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. They're just out-filter feeding, man. They're cool. Okay. They're cool. So, how much how much have you gotten to use the uh, the Blue the, Water the rig? rig? Yeah. I've been calling it a pelagic rig, just because... Pelagic rig. Um, there's, it's a common thing people call talk about blue water diving. Or black water diving. Or black water, yeah. If it's nighttime. Yeah. And I'd just rather call it pelagic diving, come on. That, that, that's probably... <laughs> More accurate. I don't know that it's going to catch on. But anyhow, yeah. Um, I haven't had a chance to use it lately. haven't done a lot of diving since the pandemic, unfortunately. But I'm looking forward to getting out and doing more. But it is, uh, it's, it's fascinating. I already told you about salps. But there's a whole slew of other cool organisms that are very different than what you're used to seeing. And in other ways, very similar because they all live in the same habitat. Yeah. But one thing about it is when you get out there, uh, blue water diving, black water diving, it's a very slow, slow paced activity. You were talking about ways of getting yourself back you know, into being in the moment. It's wonderful for that. Um, you'd mentioned my rig. People should know what we're talking about is essentially ropes. And why we use ropes diving? Come on, man! You gotta, you gotta, you gotta jazz it up a little More bit. More than that, this is right. ropes. <laughs> well, the idea it is, is a complex system to keep everybody suspended simultaneously to a hang line, <laughs> while also being able to freely move at a general depth while not losing the boat in an open expanse of ocean. Yeah, and it's something I do not want to try and describe using ropes without a picture, but I can say. The whole point of it is... Think of like an upside-down antenna with ropes. Like a TV antenna, although that might be a reference that most people don't get. TV antenna, right. Yeah. It does look like that, you're right. And there's little weights and little pulleys and all this kind of junk. But the bottom line is what it means is when I go down there, if for some reason I went unconscious, lost my mind, got confused, I don't care. If I lost control of my senses and started to sink, it would stop me. Yeah, and when the bottom is several thousand feet below you, that's important. Yeah, the deeper you go, the faster you sink, as you know as a diver. And I've done tests on the rig to to, to see if they could halt uh, an unrestrained fall, I'll yeah. call it a fall. And it ca- has caught me, and the reason I do this, of course, is because I want to take students out on it, and I want to make sure that if a student freezes up or has a problem, that they're not going to go down to Davy Jones's locker. It sounds worse than it really is, I swear. Well, it's it's funny. So when I when I talk to people about this, you always kind of gravitate towards worst case scenarios, right? Yeah. I don't know if that's just the habit of being a cautious individual when it comes to the ocean, mm-hmm. 
but I think you could give people the impression that it's super dangerous. And I think people who don't know what it is probably think it's super dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, But, I I mean, honestly, that is... Have you ever seen anybody lose consciousness underwater? I don't think I have. No, I, I haven't. Yeah, I, had I, it's happen. super uncommon unless there's some serious problems. Like mm-hmm. probably the people who see it is tech divers because there's gas and gas issues and you know people who aren't. There's a whole slew of the accidents that go along with that because yeah. outside of recreational limits, there's higher stakes and much more preparation has to go involved and a narrower margin of error and things like that. But I mean, it's super rare for something like that to happen. Um, I think it's just a way of putting in a safety space to something that's really not that hard. Yeah, I think the sure. biggest problem and the best reason for those rigs, right, is you're in a, you're in a water that you end up floating in and there's no reference points. No visual references at all. Yeah, so you thing. could drop 20 feet, 30 feet, and not even realize it. Mm-hmm. You if might you got feel pressure in your ear, but... Maybe even not. Yeah. If you're breathing, you know, if you're breathing regularly and if, you're, if your ears clear easily, sometimes I can go down mm-hmm. and not, and my ears will just pop or float up for that matter. But have you tried it out at night? Not yet. See, that's, that's the trippy one that I think would be really cool. I can't wait for that. Yeah. I think I sent you, I think I sent you a video. I you think did. I sent yeah. you a video and that's, so that is a very famous place uh, in the Philippines that does blackwater diving. And some of the photos that come out of there of like juvenile halibut or other flatfish and, uh, you know, all the stuff that comes up because people don't realize this, but there's a massive migration from deep water to shallow water at night, yep. including squid and all kinds of things. All those midwater fish. Yeah, the they, famous ones with the big teeth and the lights and stuff. Yeah, and come they come out at night, and sometimes you can see a lot of the, uh, maybe not larval, but juvenile versions of larger fish that you've seen. Yeah, for sure. And people are getting amazing photos of them out there, mm-hmm. which I think could be done here. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of part of my uh, reason for wanting to do this is I'm we've got very deep water, very close offshore. Yeah. And I've been excited about getting out there at night because of that migration, that diurnal migration of the midwater fish. There's also a lot of krill. There's a high density of organisms that hang out uh, down there. You can, if you put out sonar, you can actually see them rise up to the surface uh, in, the, really? in the evening and then come into the shallow layers. There's, uh, when we say shallow layers, what is shallow? Because obviously when you're dealing with thousands of feet, are we talking shower layer, shallow layers like 60 feet deep? Well, different organisms go to different depths. Okay. But, and some will come all the way to the surface. But like the, think around the upper 300 feet is where you'd see. When I'm talking about shallow, I'm talking about like 300 feet. So it's still fairly deep. So we would only be able to access a little less than half of the shallow. <laughs> and I'm not sure. I haven't. Uh, the organisms that I've looked at using sonar, uh, those midwater organisms that do that, that migration, there are definitely components of that pop, of that community that go all the way to the surface. And I know if you go out in, in the ocean at night, I've been out on the ocean at night a lot on research cruises and stuff. And I love hanging out at night with lights. And you see stuff at the surface. Humboldt squid will come up to the surface oh, at night man. and stuff. 
I don't know how I feel about that. Like, there's part of me that thinks it would be really cool to dive with them, and there's part of me that's utterly terrified. Well, the so I didn't invent this rig, by the way. Um, I did some research and found uh, a book prepared by a guy up at uh, who works for Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute yeah. in Bari, who has been taking scientists into the water in the blue water systems to collect these organisms. All these organisms are pretty fragile, so we know about them from network, uh, putting down scientific nets, but they tend to get tore up pretty badly. Still, scientists are aware of what they look like in their form, and they've made guesses as to what they look like when they were in their natural environments. But until people started going down and looking at them and seeing them behaving naturally and normally, it was hard for them to understand their ecology. So... I think it was starting in the 70s is when they were doing this. They started doing some dives in the open water to try and see what they were doing out there and sample them. So uh, this fellow up at, um, they'd been doing that for years. The guy that I talked with is actually kind of an academic son of the person who started doing it. Okay. But I chatted with him, spent a day talking about the rig, looked at his. He told me a lot of stories. He told me about stories of people who had died on his dive. So and it all made sense. All of the, the special safety features of the rig made perfect sense when he told me his stories. He didn't put the stories in the book. He just said, do this, do this, do this. And then when he explained to me why, I said, oh, ugh. and hmm. make sure to do these things at all times. Um, like, like as what, an example, you well, want to yeah, hear a horror I'm, story? I mean, kind <laughs> of. Like I, my morbid curiosity, and I think everybody's is kind of, yeah. like, what is an example of like, an unforeseen problem. Okay, well, this is, again, a secondhand story, and this actually happened, and people involved might hear this, so if I don't get it right, I apologize, but I'll yeah, do my best to recount the story. Yeah, name names, not that there's, yeah. yeah. Um, he was on a dive with scientists. It's a little bit difficult to tell the story without knowing how the rig works. What you should know, though, is that each diver is clicked into a rope, and that rope runs to a main downline that goes up to the surface to a float. So, and then, but everybody's basically diving the way they would normally with their weight belt, um, a BCD to control buoyancy so they stay neutral. They had the, the divers out there doing the dive, um, and there ended up becoming a, a problem with the float. The downline came unhooked from the float and the downline itself has weights at the bottom. Not a lot. It's just like five pounds. It's just enough to keep it hanging vertically. But when, it, when the rope became detached Unattached. from the float, it started to sink. And as it did, it started to draw all of the divers down, down with it. Normally, this is not a problem. Everybody uses a quick release on the line that's attaching them to the downline so they can pop it and go to the surface. The problem here is that one of the divers had attached his quick release to his weight belt. Oh, God. And That's not good. Right. Uh, he got confused. He didn't know to pull the quick release, and instead his ditched weight his weight belt. So he went skyrocketing. So the other divers suddenly had you know, 20 extra pounds Pulling them oh, down. Oh no, everybody's in trouble. Everyone managed to pull the quick release, but one diver. And it didn't take long for that diver to go to a depth where 
the air that diver was breathing of course was, was toxic. toxic oh no so that's a horror story so and i was glad to hear it and because it made sense a lot of the safety features of the rig the rig setup changed as a result of that uh, event so what do you have on there like a, a quick release clip there's the, a quick release there's two parts to that that part of the rig one is a short section that uh, clips permanently with a locking carabiner into your bc not your weight belt but to your bc it's a short length and on the end is a quick release clip it's a, a specific kind of shackle that uh, can be released when it's under tension a normal shackle if uh if something's pulling on it really hard, it's very hard to undo it and release it. It's almost impossible with a carabiner right? because you have to pull the loop around. But with these quick-release shackles, under tension, you can pull on a, a, a rope, a, a pin, yeah. like a spring-loaded pin, and it will release, and you're free of the system. Mm. So you've got that. And then beyond that, you have um, your diver line, which clips into the, into the quick-release, goes over to... Um, the, the download and then clips into a bridle and then it's like a, an eye your rope goes through the eye and then down to a, a very light weight like six ounces so that as you swim away from the downline the weight tension. comes up and it keeps tension the whole time yeah yeah and if you approach the downline uh the other so the weight drops down and takes up all that extra line as you approach the downline it's hard to describe with words. No, no, no. You're, you're doing a good idea. So it okay. just keeps tension on the line, and it slides up and down to keep that tension. Yeah, so it's pretty easy to avoid getting caught up in the line. Also, you can judge your depth pretty well by looking at your, your diver line. If it's flat, you know you're at the target depth. If it's starting to go off at a crazy angle, you've got some clue that you're off where you want to be, and you can make the correction. Hmm. So why is there a float attached? I want to attach to, I, I mean, I'm, the float should be the boat. No, oh, why not just attach to the boat? Yes. You know, I, I heard another horror story about a boat sinking, <laughs> an inflatable boat. So um, it might relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay. it's, but it's also nice to get the divers away from the boat. So in the system that I use, there is a, a locking carabiner. That the downline starts from the boat, it locks into the boat, which of course doesn't help if it sinks, uh, and then it goes from that locking carabiner to the float through a, a, a standard carabiner, and then it drops straight down from there to the weight at the bottom at a, 100 feet, the one that I use is 100 feet. Okay. And I've got it marked every 10 feet with tape so you can know which depth you're at. So... That would be 100 feet underwater for a blue water dive, man. There's, it's, uh, I tend to see most stuff around 60 feet. Yeah. Again, it's that the picnic line. And it's, it's pretty obvious when you're going down. You feel the thermocline. Usually, at least in the areas we are at, that's basically the same thing as the picnic line. That's where the density changes. And you'll tend to see more stuff piled up there because, you know, if you, you know, you just imagine if you had a, a thousand random, randomly random density objects and you threw them out most of them a larger proportion of them are going to accumulate in the area where there's a wide range of density that that climb there 
that probably doesn't make much sense. Well, no, no, it, you, basically what you're saying is when two different densities come together, there's more variety of places for different density things to be relatively close together. Yeah, everything's looking for its particular density. Yeah. So if you've got a region of the ocean, a flat region that has lots of densities in it, that place where density changes fast, then there's a lot of things that are going to set up right there. And that's usually at about 100 feet or? More like 60 to 40. Yeah, because I've heard 60 in the past. I just, you don't get a long bottom time. Well, I guess if you did the right gas mixture, but. Usually I, I, the profile I do is I go straight to 100, check it out for five minutes, and then go up to 60 and hang out for 15, 20 minutes, and then go up to about 40, hang out for another half hour. and. By then, I'm I'm old. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but I tend to see most stuff uh, right around sixty in that that area, and and I got to be honest with you, like I said, it's really slow. Basically, you just hang there, and you look around. There's nothing, and you just drift, and you be patient. And you look around, look around. Oh, and then you see something, and you go check it out, and it's a little tiny bit of snot, and then you look really close, and you realize. Oh, look, that's a siphonophore. Sweet. And you poke it, and it goes wiggle, <laughs> and take some pictures. It's kind of how it goes. But you know what, though? People are, like, most people, when they're in that environment where there's just emptiness around them, especially when you're in the open ocean, that's a little freaky. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a little unnerving. I remember the first time... I was trying to swim with whales, and my friend dropped me off in the middle of the channel between here and Catalina, <laughs> and I jumped out of the boat. Um, I don't even think my wetsuit was all the way on, and it was freezing cold. But the first thing I remember is I could see jellyfish going down, and the visibility was amazing. Like, it must have been 100 feet. The problem oh. was is I could see the jellyfish. It was like a giant school. I mean, spread out. They were like 10 or 15 feet apart. But I could see the jellyfish going down into the abyssal plane of nothingness. And it was just like, oh, this is, this is deep. Like, it's just like this realization you didn't know what you got yourself into. Yeah. And when you're sitting there in the blue like that, like, that's kind of like a spooky feeling because you just realize you don't. There's just so much. Mm -hmm. It's kind yeah. of freaky, right? Yeah. When I was testing the rig, one of the, the things I did I was a. Uh an uncontrolled fall. Yeah. And so the my the diver's line is 30 feet and the down line was 100 so that was kind of took me to the limit of recreational diving on air. Yeah. Uh and it went fast. Which which by the way um what if it didn't work right? <laughs> <laughs> like I hope you had a safety diver with you, man. Oh yeah. Okay. And yeah, all I had to do was just write myself and start kicking. But I wanted to make sure that this system would hold. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that I tried it. Because at 130 feet, it's not super forgiving. No. Or it can be very unforgiving, I should say. But uh, that was quite an experience of, and it wasn't crystal clear 100 foot visibility water at that time. So it was dark mm. by the time I got down there. Uh, that's also another thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Sometimes, uh, you know, I've talked about this before, is looking up, right? Looking up and seeing all the water on top of you can be a little bit of a mind trip, too. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
I think we filled everybody's heads with enough nightmares to last <laughs> between three foot long worms with giant mandibles, uh, you know, sinking to the bottom of the ocean, all kinds of things. Yay. So I think I think we'll finish here, man. But, uh, you know, uh, that was really cool. I'm glad you came over and had a chat. Thanks for doing it with me a second time. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation with Grant. Um, if you want to see some of the stuff that we talked about again, please check us out. Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Ocean Folk Podcast.